Okay, awesome. All right, so it's good to see you all. Those who are in person, those who are on Zoom, and those who will be listening or watching the recording, we appreciate you all, although we'd still like you to come in person. Um, so that being said, we are tonight going, uh, this is the course Booksmart, and we are exploring each week a different aspect of Jewish study. And tonight, we're going to do Midrash. So just to give you a background of what we did last week. Last week, we discussed the general difference between the written Torah and the oral Torah. We showed you and explained to you the written Torah. We showed the 24 books of the written Torah. And the subject of today and the next five classes are all going to be um, of course, the oral Torah. And as we explained last week, oral Torah is not necessarily um, so oral anymore. The topic of that will also be discussed later in the course. But today we're going to discuss a series of Jewish literature called Medrash. So here I'm going to start with a question for the class. When you hear the word Medrash, what do you think of? Uh, what, what does it evoke within you? What type of study? Yes. Stories. 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 Okay. Stories. Okay. Any anybody else? Well, say it. The study of Baba Mises. Okay. Good. Someone else told me. Someone else told me before the course. Uh, when he hears the word Medrash, he thinks of fairy tales. No, but it's it's Torah uh, It is the oral Torah. Yes, but. The specific genre, right? Remember, we said there's different genres in Jewish study. You're telling me it's the genre of Baba Mises, right? Meaning fairy tales. Okay, anybody else when you hear the word midrash? What? Parables. Okay, good, good. Parables. Any others? A lot of rabbis. Rabbis. <laughs> Lots of rabbis. Okay. <laughs> Definitely a lot of those sprinkled out. Yes. A lot of common and like well known stories in. Some of right, some of the largest stories that we know of are midrash. Um, a lot of the stories they tell over to you in school, you may not have known. A lot of the stories they would tell you, the whole story of Abraham in the fiery furnace is midrash. But we'll get to all of that. So the word midrash evokes, and if you don't know the word midrash, that's okay. But the word midrash confuses a lot of people because. Um, a lot of people just think it's fantastical stories. How rooted is it in tradition? What exactly does the word midrash mean? Where are midrash written? You know, where, where are these midrash sourced? Most people, many people have a book in their home called The Little Medrash Says. Little Medrash Says, if you've ever seen it, it's a nice little book. It explains the medrash in each week. So this week, uh, you are going to discover um, three different elements of Midrash. Number one, the meaning of the word Midrash. Okay. What, when you say the word Midrash, when I will say it, it's written in the Midrash, what do I mean? Number two, you will learn the books of the Midrash. Where can you find study of the Midrash? Number three, you will learn the anatomy of the Midrash. That's the part where you actually going to live and breathe the Midrash. We're going to study it. We're going to go into it. We're going to delve deep into it. And you're going to have an appreciation for the Midrash itself. So when I say the word Midrash, right, for some people it means a specific book. 
Anybody here knows of a book of Midrash? What it would be called? Maybe not. Maybe you haven't seen. Midrash Rabbah is usually the most quoted for those who heard of it. Um, and for others, the word Midrash means fairy tales. So we're going to have, but what does the word Midrash actually mean? Anybody knows what does the word Midrash actually mean? And uh, don't all shout out at once. Investigation, expo expounding. Expounding. Okay. Okay, good. Um, hopefully I'm sharing my screen this time. And um, what is the Midrash? Right? So here's our question. Is it a particular book or a series of books? Or is it a certain style of teaching? Yeah. Well, guess what? You are right. It is both. Midrash is both a particular series of books and a certain style of teaching. You get it, you get a ragalah, okay? <laughs> it is both a, a series of books and a certain style of teaching. That is what the Midrash is. So we're going to have to explain to you what is the style of teaching and where are these books, okay? But the actual word Midrash means as he puts out over here. Sorry, I'm just playing with my uh, computer over here. Uh, so I can see the next. I know I'm, I'm, one day I'll have someone managing this. Okay. Uh, what does the word Midrash actually mean? As Anita said, the word Midrash actually means exposition, to seek out. You ever heard somebody said, I'm going to give a drasha, right? A rabbi might, you may have heard that word. The rabbi says, I'm going to give a drasha in some synagogues. A drasha usually means a sermon, okay? A sermon is usually a rabbi will take a couple of different verses in the Torah and based on that, bring to you a certain message. So what's called an exposition, meaning it's not a direct reading of the text. It's examining a text and through that coming to an exposition, coming to an explanation that is not clear, clearly the text itself, but something you learn from the text, yes. How does that differ from Okay, so a Devar Torah can be a medrash, a drash, or it cannot be a drash. In other words, a Devar Torah just means I'm saying words of Torah. So a Devar Torah can mean I'm literally reciting word for word what someone else said, or I can be doing a drash, expounding on a topic. So like most of what we've done in this course, not to confuse you, but it is confusing. Most of what we've done in this course, good evening, good evening. Um, there's a book over here. Most of what we've done, but you can put it, oh, there's two more books there, so you can sit over here. Uh, most of what we've done in this course, we've showed you actually any word in Judaism is, is confusing. We have both the word, is everybody afraid of uh, coming near? Okay. Oh, 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 we have both the word uh, Torah, right? Last week we showed you how the word Torah can either mean a specific book or a general study. Similarly, the word Medrash can mean a specific book or a style of study. Okay, but again, when you hear the word medrash itself, it means to expound. And medrash is an area of Torah devoted to expounding the text of the written Torah. Again, the written Torah is everything that we have. Medrash means we expound the words of the written Torah. And in, these, in this, there are so many elements. Let me see if I have... Uh, we, you know, we gave the example last week, right? We said it just like last week. We said that a human being, uh, right, is encoded in a strand of DNA. Similarly, the Medrash expounds on layers of meaning encoded in every verse of the Torah. So every line of the Torah will have multiple Medrash on it 
because we expound, we take the words and we learn so many things uh, of it. Let me see if I, uh, I don't know why they put all these slides in here. Um, okay. Uh, I want to share on the screen. If you have in your student book, text number one. Um, let's take a look at text number one. If you have that, I'm sorry I didn't open this earlier for me. Okay, I'm going to share on the screen as well. The student book. Hopefully, you all have student books, but if not, I will be sharing on the screen right now. And this is text number one. And we're going to zoom in onto this. I don't know how clear that is in, in person. One second. That doesn't look very clear, does it? Um, oh, there it is. Okay. All right. This is uh, from the Talmud. The Talmud says, my words are like fire, says God, and like a hammer that shatters a rock. As the hammer explodes many particles, so does one verse of scripture diverge into many meanings. The Torah, every line, because it's written by God, can have multiple meanings. And this is what Medrash is. And we will, again, show you actual examples. Right now, I'm giving you an introduction. But this is what Medrash means. Medrash means that you can take a verse and like a hammer that hits a rock, explodes all over. The words of the verse can be expounded in multiple different ways. And just simple example. Uh, many of you maybe have been coming to synagogue for many years, and I have to keep coming up with new content, right? Now I give a sermon. I might be talking about the same verse year after year, but it'll be a different content from that same verse. And you all can do it. You can take any text of Torah and expound on it and get different meanings. That's the idea of Medrash. This is the style of study of Medrash. Style of study of Medrash means expounding, taking text and learning multiple things from it. You might ask, how can you learn multiple things from a single place? Well, that is, of course, because God wrote the Torah and it has multiple meanings in it. Okay, so that is the word Midrash. Within Midrash itself, so again, I have defined so far Midrash, the word Midrash, to mean expounding, taking a text and learning multiple items from that text. How do you do that? We're going to explain later. But I want to say within Midrash, within expounding a specific verse, there are two styles of Midrash. One of them you have all been harping on, which is Midrash of quote-unquote fairy tales. Medrash of stories, okay? Most, when people hear the word medrash, people generally think that medrash is stories. Um, I'm going to tell you that that's actually only part of medrash. Yes, part of medrash is taking verses in the Torah and filling in the blanks, telling us the stories. The other half of medrash is actually expounding on verses and telling us the laws. This is where it gets complicated. This is why people get confused. People confuse, well, isn't Talmud not Medrash and Medrash is not Talmud? Certain books are called certain names, but the study of Medrash means studying a verse and expounding upon it. That is what Medrash means. And so a lot of Medrash, if you open up any of the books of Medrash, which they're going to tell you what they are soon, they have a genre of study of law. They take a verse and they will look at the verse and we will learn multiple things from that verse. So to recap what I said today, 
there's a genre of Jewish learning called Medrash. What is Medrash? It's both a book, but it's also a style of Jewish teachings. One second. It's a style of Jewish teachings. What style of Jewish teaching is it? It's taking a verse and expounding on it, finding multiple layers of meaning that are within it. Within Medrash, there are two general genres. One genre is called, for those who want to know the official name, Agada, means stories. And the other one is learning Jewish law. Those are the two types of Medrash. Um, now, the Medrash was written in, is written in multiple places, okay? In other words, so I've told you what Medrash is. Where do you find it, right? So the answer is, Medrash is written in multiple different books. If you have a student book, you'll see it on figure 2.2, on page 62. But I'm going to share a video where uh, someone's going to go a little quickly through all the different genres that we have of the Medrash, give you a little bit of history. If you know some of these books, good. If you don't, don't. But it'll give you a general idea of exactly... Um, sorry. It'll give you a general idea of... Uh, the time frame of which books the Medrash are written in. It will also um, tell you what type of, um, it will also tell you uh, what genre each one is. So again, this is a little bit of history. If you're not a history buff, don't worry, it's a short video, but I'm going to mute all because I'm hearing uh, feedback. Okay, I'm going to mute myself. So let's take a look at this video. Actually, I'd like to do one thing. Um, let's go over here. I like to play videos. This is me. I like to play videos. Uh, oh no, forget about it. All right, I'll delete it. It's, I would do one in 1.25, but whatever. Okay. Um, let me go back here, share the screen, share, optimize for video clip. Okay. Midrash comes from the Hebrew verb drush, to seek out or expound. It refers to the effort to explore, explain, and expound on the Torah. It is also the title of an entire genre of literature generated by Mishnaic and Talmudic sages, the phenomenal Jewish scholars who lived roughly between 100 and 500 CE. Midrashic literature comes in two forms. One, halachic. These works document the intricate methods used to analyze the typically terse biblical texts containing the Torah's 613 commandments. The goal of a halachic midrash is to show how the detailed laws governing the practical observance of those commandments are derived. Two, Agadic. These works provide a wealth of explanation of biblical texts and narratives, parables that clarify or illustrate a point, moral and ethical teachings, philosophical insights, mystical traditions, historical narratives and background information not explicitly recorded in the biblical text, and stories from the lives of the ancient sages. Much Midrashic material was lost in the upheavals of Jewish history, but the surviving works form a library of their own. Here are the major Midrashic works still in existence, including later era anthologies, in chronological order. Pirkei Rabbi Eliezer explores the biblical events from the creation 
until the Jewish journey through the Sinai Desert. It is attributed to one of the Mishnah's most prominent sages, Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus. Mechilta de Rabbi Yishmoel preserves expositions on the book of Exodus that were taught in the academy of Rabbi Yishmoel ben Elisha. Mechilta de Rajbi offers expositions on the book of Exodus from an alternative academy, that of the much beloved Rabbi Akiva. Its recording is attributed to his disciple, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the famous author of the mystical Zohar. Seder Olam, meaning world chronology, chronicles biblical and post-biblical history from creation until the second century Bar Kokhva revolt against the Romans. It is attributed to Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta of Sephoris. Sifra provides key expositions on Leviticus, which focus on Kohanim, Jewish priests who served in the temple. The work is also called Torat Kohanim, the laws of the priests. Its partner volumes on the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy are known collectively as Sifri. The insights in these volumes were taught by the school of Rabbi Yehuda, a disciple of Rabbi Akiva. Maimonides identifies the Talmudic sage Rav as the compiler of Sifra and Sifri. Midrash Rabbah is a series of 10 separate works that provide textual expositions, historical narratives, and moral teachings structured as commentaries on the five books of Moses and the five scriptural scrolls, Song of Songs, Ruth, Esther, Lamentations, and Ecclesiastes. These anthologies were compiled between the third and 12th centuries and record teachings of Talmudic sages from the land of Israel from the third and fourth centuries. Midrash Tanchuma is a foundational book offering expositions on the five books of Moses. It is named after a fourth century author heavily quoted in the work, Rabbi Tanchuma. The Talmud is not an exclusively Midrashic work, but its legions of volumes include a vast treasury of halachic and agadic Midrashic material. Midrash Tehillim offers commentary on the Book of Psalms. Its era of compilation is unknown, but it is cited in works as early as the 11th century. Yalkut Shmoni, a voluminous Midrashic anthology covering all 24 books of Tanakh, was compiled by Rabbi Shimon Hadarshan of Frankfurt, Germany. Midrash Hagadol is an anthology attributed to Rabbi David Bar Amram Aladani of Yemen. Ein Yaakov, an extraction of the Agadic sections of the Talmud, was compiled by Rabbi Yaakov Ibn Habib of Spain and Greece. The sheer number of surviving Midrashic works spanning 15 centuries testifies to the Jewish scholar's remarkable commitment to identifying and expounding the wisdom and guidance contained in God's Torah. Back here. All right, you can hear me again? Okay, awesome. All right. Yes. 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 I can hear you. Okay, good, good. All right, so if you're, um, oh wait, Dick, you want to catch light? So if you are a history buff, you got a little bit of history. As I said earlier, you can see everything that he said there in the little, little graph there on page 62. So if you ever want to reference what are the famous books of Medrash, surprisingly, I want to point this out because this ties into what I said earlier. You'll notice that part of Medrash is in Talmud because again, Medrash 
is both names of books and a style of Jewish study. And therefore, actually, a big part of Medrash is found within the Talmud itself, because the Talmud is not, is, we'll learn more about the Talmud next week, but a big part of Talmud is Medrash as well. What I do want to also note is you'll notice the last books of the Medrash were not very late in history. And that's because uh, generally, um, as time has gone on, different eras of Jewish scholarship have closed. And although I can make, so to speak, a drash, I can look at a verse and expound on it, I wouldn't put that in a book and say, this is the holy, holy, you know, read these sermons and read them over and over and study different meanings from them. The general view in Judaism is that the previous generations, the sages of previous generations had a greater um, divine inspiration. And so their words we study more deeply. Their words were more concise. They have, just as the Torah itself, one verse can have multiple meanings. The sages of previous generation had a deeper insight. And so we can study their words not as deep as to the Torah, but we can also study their teachings because they were more divinely inspired. And as generations go on, our words mean less and our content means more. Uh, you can actually see this. If you take any ancient Jewish book, they're more concise than modern day books. I always like to point out that Rashi himself is actually very concise. There's a famous section in the Talmud. Uh, Rashi wrote a commentary in most of the Talmud. We'll get to who Rashi is in a later class, but Rashi wrote a commentary in a lot of things, but he wrote a commentary in the Talmud. And there's one point where he passes away. He didn't finish it and his grandson finishes it. But on this, where he finishes off and where his grandson starts, they comment on the same word. And Rashi is like two lines and his grandson is like five lines. So we see this idea uh, that previous sages were more concise, but all their words have great meaning. So again, getting back to what I said, Medrash, the style of Medrash you can do today as well. But I will not call the books that you will print today of your Darash, I will not call Medrash. When we say Medrash, it's written in the Medrash, I won't mean Rabbi Adler's book of sermons or you know, Rabbi Sachs's books of, books of sermons. As nice as they are, that will not be classified as Medrash it's drash. It's nice. It's the same style of study, but we cannot classify it as medrash. All right. That's one thing I want to point out. So, so far, what we have explained to you is A, I, I said there's going to be three things we're going to talk about today. What is medrash? We explained to you that you already. It's a style of study taking text. You may not believe me because you say, well, what about all those stories? Okay. Hold with me. Bear with me. Taking a text and expounding on it. Number uh, number two, what are the books of Medrash? We just showed you a video of the books of Medrash and you can see it on page 62. And we said Medrash generally splits into two different sections, Agada and Halacha. And for the rest of the class, we are actually going, so instead of me talking blue in my face about what Medrash is, um, instead, I am going to actually show you what Medrash is. So you're actually going to explore for yourself. If you're on the Zoom, are you seeing my? Uh, are you seeing the um, the PowerPoint? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So, as I said a moment ago, Medrash yes. includes within itself. Thank you. Thank you. It includes within itself two categories. One is halachic. Number two is agadic. But actually, there are many, many more types of. Within those two, you can split it up into multiple different sections, and we're going to show you all these different types. Mm -hmm. If you have the book. You can see it on page 60, figure 2.1. And here it breaks it down into many, many different formats of um, 
Midrash. One is legal exposition, that's Jewish law. Another one is historical narratives. For example, um, the Torah talks about certain characters. We don't get their whole life. For example, uh, sorry, for example, Moses. Moses, uh, we have a little bit about his birth, a little bit about, um, you know, killing the Egyptian running away, and then a little bit about coming back to Egypt. And then we have, uh, you know, the rest of the time of the Jewish people in the desert. So we're missing a lot of his history, okay? The Midrash fills in a lot of the gaps. Abraham, the Torah really starts with Abraham when he's age 75. What was he doing till then, you know? So, uh, right, it's like the judge tells the uh, person, where were you between four and five? He says, I was in kindergarten playing with blocks, you know? So where was, uh, where, where was Abraham, you know, between one and 75? So the Midrash fills in those details. It finds hints in the verses, yes, but it fills in the details. Uh, we have moral and ethical teachings of the Midrash. You have philosophical parables, Torah commentary, lives of sages, and we are going to now explore all of these. And I'm going to give you, we're going to study text itself and give you examples of the text itself. Um, just, you know, studying text itself is always important. They tell the story of a, um, you know, a wife who uh, sends her husband shopping. Always a bad idea. Um, always a bad idea. And uh, so she sends her husband shopping and she says, listen, when you get to the store, uh, buy some milk. And if they have eggs, get a dozen. So he comes back with 12 bottles of milk. He says, what's this? He says, well, you told me if they have eggs, I should get a dozen, right? A dozen bottles of milk, right? So it's all how do you understand the words of what's being said. The study of words is important. Um, and so we're going to explore that. Someone asks, how do the rabbis know exactly the stories they tell us? or the expositions they tell us. Well, as we're going to discover some of it, and this goes back to our previous class, some of it is received and some of it is derived. In other words, some of the stories were passed down and then they found hints to those stories within the text. And some of the stories were derived or you know, reading the text and having an understanding of it, uh, they were able to derive and glean ideas and that particularly holds true in Jewish law. But we're going to we're going to see text, and we're going to show you text, and hopefully you will um, be able to see everything that I'm telling you. So we're going to start with, you're going to turn in your student book to page 88, okay? Turn to page 88, and uh, we're going to start with an example of a historical narrative. Page 88, and uh, if you're here on the Zoom, I'll also share on the screen, although... Um, Okay, so again, page 88. Just give me a moment here. The taskbar, okay. Page 88, so I'm gonna have to go to page 88 myself over here, right? Okay, let's see, 88. There, okay, page 88, there it is. All right, so here we have the backstory of Abraham. Okay, this is an example of historical narratives, and we will see how it's hinted within the verse itself. Again, the general, general uh, uh, theme of a, of a medrash is that you can find 
the ideas that it's talking about within the Medrash itself. So here's an example, backstory of Abraham, right? We said Abraham, the Torah talks about him when he was 75. What happened until he was 75? So here we have from the Medrash Tanchuma. Go back to the history part. You'll see what, where Medrash Tanchuma says. Said Rabbi Acha, this is in the section Abraham's earlier. Said Rabbi Acha in the name of Rabbi Hanina. At the age of three, Abraham recognized his creator as it is written in consequence of that which Abraham listened to my voice. Now, the Hebrew word for in consequence, the Torah uses the word akev. The word akev in Hebrew has the numerical value of 172. In Hebrew, every letter has a number assigned to it. An ayin is 70, a kuf is 100, a vet is 2, and Abraham lived 175 years. This teaches us that at age 3, Abraham recognized his creator. So, sounds like, well, how did you get that information, right? So the way I read that Medrash is there was obviously a tradition. That's the way I would understand it. I don't, we don't really know, but I'm going to assume that there was a tradition that Abraham recognized God when he was three. Okay. Now, where can we find a hint to that in the verse? So we have the verse in Genesis 26, five says the Medrash says, Abraham, you listen to me because you listen to God. Therefore, I'm going to bless you with all the blessings. Now, how many years did Abraham listen to God for? So the Medrash finds a hint in the word Akib, which was a strange word to use there and saying 172. Abraham listened to God for 172 years. That means for three years of his life, he didn't recognize God. But what else does that tell us? That means at age three, he did recognize God. See so here again, Medrash is, some people said fairy tales, okay? The, obviously there was a tradition among some that Abraham was age three and they found a hint to it in the verses of the Torah, okay? And uh, there's other Medrash. Zohar also has Medrash in it as well, which, which you know tells us the story. How did he recognize God? He went outside, he saw the sun and the moon, and he figured out that someone has to create both of those, the sun and the moon. And, you know, they, they, couldn't, they can't be raising and, and lowering themselves. Um, then you have the, the Medrash. Another Medrash tells us the story of Abraham smashing all the idols in his father's shop. These are all historical narratives, okay? So again, these all fall in the genre of historical narratives, and they find hints to the historical narrative in the verses, but ultimately the stories themselves, we would say, are of uh, tradition. I would say they're more of the received, okay? Everybody so far understands Medrash in a historical. In fact, if you open up the Torah really anywhere, um, a lot of details within the Torah we understand based on a Medrash. There are words that seem funny, but when you know the Medrash, then it makes sense. I'll give another example. The Torah tells us that God tested Abraham 10 times. After the uh, binding of Isaac, God says, I tested you 10 times. If you actually read the text of the Torah, you won't find 10 tests. The Medrash fills in the blanks for us. What were those previous tests? Okay, and they find hints to it in different words. For example, it says Abraham left or kastim. The rabbis understand from that Hebrew word that means he left a fire. That tells us the historical narrative of Abraham being put in a furnace for his beliefs. I'm not getting into the detail. My point is that there are historical narratives that were obviously passed down, and the rabbis find hints to these narratives in the words. And in fact, without these historical narratives, 
many parts of the Torah we would not be able to understand. It's kind of filling in the blanks for what's missing. If you want to ask why didn't the Torah write everything in there, that's you got to get another class on that one. Okay. Um, the next form of a medrash. So, so far we have a medrash, which is um, a style of historical. The next one we're going to show you is moral and ethical. Okay, moral and ethical. So if you have a student book, you're going to turn to page 92. Page 92. I really, really like this one. Um, again, you'll see a moral and ethical teaching based on based on a verse. So let's go to 92 up here. 90, sorry, 92. Okay, 92. And let's zoom in over here. All right. So here it is. Um, you know, before I before I share the text itself, let me ask you. Um, you've ever met people you don't like in life, people who do things you think are wrong? Yes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm surprised, but apparently some people have. Um, how do we treat these people? How what are we supposed to do with them? I do run we, away. We could run away, right? What do we hope for these types of people? If you go on to social media, you'll find out. That they do tshuva. Well, that's what you hope for. Most people, <laughs> that's because you may know the medrash. Uh, most people go out there and uh, you just have to go on social media and find all of the wishes, shall we say, that people have on their enemies, okay? Whether it be political enemies or, I mean, you even have people at sports games rooting for a team that's on the field and they get into physical fights. I mean, <laughs> you know, this is a society and this is the way a lot of us sometimes think. Um, you know, we wish that person didn't exist. They're really bad. They, they could, you know, just disappear off the face of the earth and do everybody a favor. Um, so here is what the, it's also, by the way, we, we deal with prison kind of, you know, when we have people who do bad in America, we just lock them up in prison and just kind of put them out of sight, out of mind. For many years, we don't really care what's ha what happens to them. So here's a, there was a great sage. His name was Rabbi Mayer. You can see it inside. Rabbi Mayer had bad neighbors, thugs. They would uh, play their music late at night, their rap music. And uh, okay, no, I don't know exactly what his neighbors were. So Rabbi Mayer was praying to God that his neighbors, his evil neighbors should die. Okay. Hmm. His wife, Beruria, said to him, what are you think? What is your thinking? Is it because it's written in Psalms 104:35, sins shall cease from the earth and the wicked are no, no more? And for those who know Hebrew, Yitamo Chataim in Arts, Urashaim Od Enam. But it doesn't, but it doesn't say sinners shall cease, only that sins shall cease. Pray for them that they should repent. And then as the verse concludes, the wicked are no more. Rabbi Meir prayed for them and they repented. So again, she took a verse. Where, the to where King David in Psalms doesn't say sinners shall seize from the earth. He said sins shall seize from the earth. And she said, uh-huh, look at that. We don't want. So in other words, you might read it quickly and look at the end of the verse and say, well, it says, and the wicked are no more. Well, by looking at the beginning of the verse, she said, well, how do the wicked become no more? By becoming not wicked. How do they become not wicked? The sins shall seize from the earth. So this is a Jewish value taken from the Medrash, moral, ethical values of Medrash-style study. Taking the verse, looking at it carefully, and learning. When we see people doing bad, we don't wish bad on them. 
we hope that they amend and they correct their ways. You don't like a political party. You don't like the way uh, Jews are running Israel. You don't like anything, whatever, you know, it's all different, all different hangups that we have. Don't ever wish harm on somebody else. There's exceptions, of course, a Haman, you know, you, you know, and, and people like that. But the general rule, the general rule is we pray that sins should end, not the sinners. Any questions or comments on that? Because I think that's such a powerful Jewish lesson. And here you see it uh, coming from the Medrash. And there are just so many of those. Um... Anybody? No? Okay. All right. So, uh, so to recap, we've gone through two types of non-halachic Medrash. One was historical narrative. We gave the example of Abraham. Number two was moral ethical, learning from the verse uh, sinners, not, we don't want to get rid of sinners. We just want to get rid of sins. All right, now we're going to go to something somebody here mentioned, parables. Parables, okay. Um, anybody here ever learned Ecclesiastes? It's a fascinating thing. Uh, let us turn to page 89 in the student book. Page 89 in the student book. We're going to look at a medrash of a parable. Uh, page 89. 89, 89, okay. So here you have page 89, and here we're gonna have a parable. Oh, I gotta zoom in over there, right? Of course. Uh, oh, I didn't go to 89, sorry. Or am I on 89? Yes, I am, okay. Uh, we wanna go to the fox and the vineyard. Okay, the fox and the vineyard story. So here again, we're gonna expound on a verse to tell you a parable. Why a parable? Well, it's just another way of teaching moral and ethical teachings. So let us take a look at what it says over here. This is from Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. And in Kohelet, it says like this, Ecclesiastes, written by King Solomon. For those who remember, it was in the books called the Ketuvim, the writings. So King Solomon writes like this in Ecclesiastes. And he left his mother's womb naked, Shall he return to go as he came? He will carry nothing from his toil that he will take in his hand. So you read it simply, it is referring to the human being. We leave the mother's womb naked and we work and work and work and that's how we're going to return after our life is over. The Midrash takes the verse and tells us a parable based on this verse. Even though the verse itself is clear, the parable helps bring home the message. So let's read the parable. A fox found a vineyard that was fenced in on all, all around from all sides. There was one hole in the fence through which the fox tried to enter, but was not able to. What did the fox do? He fasted for three days until he was skinny and thin and entered through the hole. He ate his fill and got fat. He tried leaving, but he was unable to fit through it all. So again, he fasted for three days until he grew weak and skinny as before and got out. When he got outside, he turned his fence back to gaze at the vineyard and said, vineyard, oh vineyard, how godly, are, how goodly are you and how, and how goodly are the fruits within you. And all that is in you is beautiful and praiseworthy. But what pleasure can one derive from you? As one enters into you, so does one leave. So it is with our world. It's deep. 
Let me ask you, what does the message of that parable, I have a thought, but anybody can have a thought. The parable is obviously adding on to the verse. The verse itself tells you, as you enter, that's how you leave. The parable is adding a layer to it. Why a parable? Why is Medrash employing a parable? Because I believe parables are ways for us to connect to text. Seeing a story helps us translate it, helps us see it in a new light. So the rabbis employ parable to explain a verse. Can anybody tell me what does the parable add to you to meaning of this story? But you'll have to you know, do it quick. But yes, any, any thoughts? Because you're not taking it with you anyways. Okay, any other thoughts? Well, yes. Life is like the fox. Um, it takes, it gives life to you and takes it from you. You got it. You, you come as you enter. Okay, any other thoughts? So just so you understand, parables, it says King Solomon was able to tell um, 3,000 parables on a single concept. Parables allow us to connect with ideas that are beyond us or ideas that are not as easily grasped. Um, just one thought I had just reading that parable is, um, yeah, you read, okay, we go as we come, but while I'm here, I'll enjoy it. One thing the parable tells you, just tells you, is when you think about the fox, the fox has an entire life to live. And he's he doesn't want to be confined to this little vineyard, right? If he did, then he would have stayed there, right? He's not going to be confined to the vineyard his entire life. He has a long life to live. So he first sees the grapes. They look great. And he walks in and he likes to eat it. But when he's done, he realizes he can't take them with him. He has to shed it all in order to continue on. And I think that's really life. Sometimes we get caught up in the pleasures of life because it feels like it goes on forever. But really, we have to view life as the fox entering the vineyard. In other words, our soul is around for a long time. It's there before we enter this world, and it's there after we enter this world. We're only in this world for a short period of time. And so collecting the grapes, the pleasures of life, is not really what's important because after three days, you have to get rid of them anyways. Collecting the latest cars and latest houses and latest gadgets and latest iPhones and latest Samsung and latest, you know, we, but the problem is we don't view ourselves as the fox because we don't see it as a three-day stint because we're here in this earth. We're like stuck in the vineyard. But the parable of the vineyard is telling you, no, remember, you were around before the vineyard and you'll be around long after the vineyard. This is a short stint. Make the most and meaningful time of your period in the vineyard and don't get caught up just eating the grapes. Find something meaningful in it. So that's just one lesson I picked up from the fox how the parable adds just to the verse. Because you can read the verse and you can say, okay, all right, so I don't leave with any, but while I'm here, let me enjoy. That's one idea that the parable adds on, in my opinion, to the text itself. Okay, so far we have had a historical narrative, Abraham. We've had a medrash of a moral ethical teaching, uh, which was the, now I'm forgetting already, the moral ethical teaching about... Beruria, right, to pray for uh, sinners, uh, that they should become better. We had a parable. In other words, the Medrash takes a verse and gives us a parable to help us better understand it. The next one we're going to go is to philosophical and mystical, okay, meaning some Medrashim explain us the big life questions. Uh, wait, I got a couple comments here. Um, sorry, it is, it's hard to follow. 
uh, someone wrote here about the previous uh, about the previous one. Is there a threshold at which we hope and pray that the sinner perish? If not, doesn't the death penalty for certain sins negate the notion? Oh, okay. Um, yes, Judaism does believe in the death penalty. Um, so, um, but if someone is not found guilty, then uh, we pray for them. And even while they're alive, we hope they change, you know, till they get the death penalty, we hope they change their way. We die and all success cannot come with us. Correct, correct. Okay. Um, all right, next one is philosophical and mystical. And this one is going to be found on page 90. Okay. So this is another genre of Midrash. Kind of... Um, getting us to look at the bigger picture of life. Let's take a look at student book page 90. So again, we've had um, historical, we've had a parable, we've had moral ethical. Now we're going to show a, a, you know, large philosophical ideas. Um, just give me a moment here. Let me share the screen. Let's share the screen. Share, share, share. Okay. I hope um, hope you're all finding this interesting because I find it interesting actually seeing the text. It's something we haven't done in other classes. So it's not like some of my other classes where there's a lot more jokes and a lot more back and forth, but we're really discovering uh, the text itself. So we're going to be on page 90. Uh, so I'm going to need to be page over here. And we're going to be on page 90 uh, where you see the big bet, the letter bet. We're going to discuss the letter bet. So again, this is another genre of medrash. Medrash that... Um, delves into the deep mysteries and big questions of life and uh, the world itself. So I'm sure you all know, uh, what is the first letter of the Aleph Bet? And I just said it, what's the first letter of the Aleph Bet? It's the letter Aleph, okay? What is the second letter of the Aleph Bet? The letter hey, Bet. Hey. Yeah, the, the Bet, exactly, or Base, as some pronounce it, as I do. Um, the Torah itself, you would think, would start with the letter Aleph. Would be an important letter to start with. In fact, the Ten Commandments start with the letter Aleph. I mean, it's the first letter of the alphabet. You should start with the letter Aleph. But yet the Torah starts with the letter Bet. Beratius, in the beginning. Okay? Now you say, well, how else would God start at the beginning? Well, God, I'm sure he could have figured it out. He's pretty smart, I think. You know, he could have figured out how to start with the letter Aleph. Why does he start... Uh, he could have said Elohim uh, bara. Uh, uh, could have said God created Elohim bara. That would be an easy way to start with the letter Aleph. So why start with the letter Bet? So the Medrash finds a lot of meaning in the letter Bet. So let's take a look here. Uh, again, page page ninety. Rabbi Yona said in the name of Rabbi Levi, "Why was the world created with the letter Bet?" And he explains, just as the letter Bet is closed on all sides and open in the front. So we're going to look at a picture of it, okay? This is the letter bet. Closed on the top, closed on what you might say the back side, because Hebrew is read right to left. So, so that's the back side being closed up. And it's closed on the bottom. The only part of it that's open is the front. That's so you can get to the cookie. Okay. Um, uh, just as the letter bet is closed on all sides and open in the front, so are we not able to inquire what is beneath the creator reality? What is above it? What came before it? Or what will come after it? Rather, we can only inquire from the day the world is created and after. In other words, we're created and we're only looking towards the future. We might have large existential questions. What was going on before? What's above? What's below? 
He's telling you the world is created and you have to focus on what's in front of you. The letter bet is only open on what's in front of you. We focus on what's here and now. We study some of the other ideas, but the only thing that we can really know is what's in front of us. That's the message Rabbi Levi gets from it. Rabbi Yehuda ben Pazi expounded on the creation story according to Bar Kapra. Why was the world created with the letter bet? To teach us there are two worlds, this world and the world to come. The letter bet in Hebrew is a numerical value of two. She's telling you there's two worlds. You should know, yeah, you live here on this earth, but there's another world. So again, here you're seeing they're trying to, they're teaching you larger than life ideas, deep philosophical and important life meaning. Um, let's skip. Um, okay. Okay, all right, that, that was just two examples. We don't need to go through everything. Um, so here you have examples of Medrash where it's not a parable. It's not, you know, just a, um, just a, you know, an important uh, moral and ethical lesson. It's more of larger than life ideas and topics and things to ponder about. In fact, just to quote um, the, Seven, the, the first Chabad, the first Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, I think it was the first Chabad Rebbe, he was quoted here in the student book somewhere. Um, let me find it in here. I believe it's text number something. <laughs> um, you have a text. Okay. Text number three. Text number three, page 65. Okay. Text number three says like this, uh, page 65. Um, I'm not on page 65, that's the problem. Okay, he writes like this. Most of the esoteric wisdom of the Torah is hidden in the gut of the, of the book of Yaakov. In other words, there are many, many deep secrets of life, the world, and they are hidden in the Agadic book here, it gives the name of one Agadic book. So again, here you see that the Torah has within it um, deep, deep, deep secrets. And where can you find them? You can find them in the Agada. Sometimes they sound fantastical. If you read other parts of the Medrash, it'll talk about the letter Bet came to God. I think it's in this text over here that we were reading before. The letter Bet came to God and complained to him and says, how come, uh, you know, how come, uh, you know, I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't the first letter, you know? Sorry, Aleph came and complained, how come I wasn't the first letter? So did the letter Aleph actually come to God? Not necessarily. They're describing a lesson through a story. And so that's one way to look at the Midrash. Um, are all Midrashim meant to be read literal? Not necessarily. Based on what I've shown you today, not, not necessarily. Sometimes they're trying to teach you a lesson. Was there ever the story with a fox? Not necessarily. Did the letter Bet itself actually come to God? And did he actually come and beg and say, uh, you know, God, why am I not first? Not necessarily. I don't know. Yes or no. But it's definitely a message that the rabbis were telling us from a Midrash style of learning. Um, and so you'll see this throughout the stories of the Torah, all these different types of uh, stories that you read. And sometimes you wonder, is it, did it actually happen? Did it not actually happen? And my answer to you is, I'm not sure. Every, you know, when you say Midrash is fairy tales, 
Um, what people don't realize is sometimes the medrash is actually um, the medrash that you're seeing. You think it's a fairy tale, and maybe it was just meant to be a certain lesson in your life, or it was trying to demonstrate a certain idea. I'll end off with one. Well, on this final topic of medrash on the agadic, the more parable, the more esoteric ideas of medrash. They say that the Baal Shem Tov, we have a lot of stories of the Baal Shem Tov, right? Um, now, somebody has gone through the actual stories of the Baal Shem Tov, found out that there's too many stories for them to have actually happened. For example, there's a lot of stories of the, of the Baal Shem Tov that happened on a Saturday night. He didn't have enough Saturday nights in his life to enable that to happen, all the stories that we have. So one Sadiq, one rabbi put it like this. He said, if you don't believe any of the stories of the Baal Shem Tov, you're a heretic. But if you believe all of them, you're a fool. In other words, as someone once said, they don't tell these stories about me and you. In other words, the story, we have stories of the Baal Shem Tov. Some of them may have actually happened. Some of them may have, as we said, grown a beard, changed over time. But uh, the stories of the Baal Shem Tov are all meaningful and they all teach us a lesson, even if maybe that particular story didn't happen. Going to Medrash, some of the stories that it tells us happened and some of the stories that it tells us are a message. Some Medrash is clearly a message and didn't really happen. I mean, I could give you examples that, you know, that the Talmud talks about this. I, I was in Yeshiva, it was a, it was a Medrash. The Talmud talks about this giant serpent of the sea and how fast it was traveling. And my friend and I, we made the calculation that, that this, this monster couldn't have even lived in the sea. It's just too big, okay? Or the Medrash talks about this giant fish that came off of the, you know, came off of the ocean and, and its skin, it, it fed 60 cities and they built out of its skin giants like, or there are stories of this giant chicken. Like there are stories in the Medrash, some of them are clearly parables. Some of them are clearly messages taught in this style of teaching. That's why people call them fairy tales, but some of them are real. And so what I have to say is don't outright dismiss any story of the Medrash you hear, but also don't necessarily say it's for sure happened. You have to take, take each story within context and understand, was it telling us that this story actually happened or um, was it um, was it a message to us? And sometimes the answer is we're not sure. There's actually a video that JLI puts up at the end of this. You know, they have a website where you can watch additional videos. And uh, one of the rabbis gives an example. It says, when God gave us the Torah, he picked up the mountain and held it over our heads and said, if you accept it, good. If not, I'll kill you right here. Did that happen or did it not? My answer is, I don't know, as the other rabbi said, but it's true. Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe yes, that's what God actually did. Or maybe he didn't actually physically hold a mountain over our head, but the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the love that God was showing us was as if he forced us into it. And as we weren't doing it fully out of our free will. So hopefully next time someone tells you Medrash and you say fairy tales or tall tales or fantastical tales, now you have a better understanding. Medrash is a giant body of work containing multiple different styles of exposition. Some of them are parables. Some of them are moral lessons. Some of them are ethical teachings. Some of them are lessons on big questions of life. And some of them are historical narratives. But we tend to you know, focus on the one style that we hear, but really it means multiple, multiple things. All right, now we're gonna go into the next part of Midrash, which is the law. So Rabbi, far, yes. where did you go to yeshiva? 
Um, I went in Chicago and Toronto and New York and New Jersey and LA and uh, yeah. Incredible. That's that's a lot of yeshivaing. <laughs> okay, who's who is it? Who's talking? I just can't see. Oh, this is Isaac. Oh, Isaac. Okay, okay, awesome, awesome. Um, well, yeah, you got to uh, got it. It's like uh, Pokemon. You got to catch them all. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, okay. Someone said this is oh, correct. Huh? All right. So is everybody a little bit clearer on, quote unquote, the stories of the Medrash? Do you have a better idea? The parables, the stories, what, what is known, as you'll know now, is called the Agada of the Medrash. That's one genre. Now we're going to move on to Jewish law. And let me share my screen over here. Oops, I'm sharing the wrong screen. We're going to move on to the PowerPoint now for a few moments. Okay, now we're going to show you the... Um, now, I'm not sure. All right, I got to do this one more time. So I'm doing this all wrong. Sorry. Uh, one day we'll get a dedicated um, slide person over here. Okay. Um, all right, oh, we're going to skip that, we're going to skip that, all right, let's skip a couple slides. Um, all right, so this is to say the Midrashic literature contains stories, narratives, parables with mystical teachings of the Torah. Most of the esoteric wisdom of the Torah is hidden in the Agadot in the book of Ein Yaakov. Um, okay. Now we're going to discuss Midrash methodologies. Okay, now we're going to get into how does the Midrash arrive at their conclusions? We have so far said that we expound on the verses. You have seen a couple times they used numerical values, right? That was one way of expounding. We're going to pivot right now. We're going to move off from the stories more to Jewish law. And we're going to discuss four different methods that are used to learn the uh, methods of Torah exposition. So again, we're going to examine verses and show you four different methods that are employed by the sages. They have many, many more, and we can't go through all of them today. If you have a sitter, you'll probably see in the morning, you'll see 13 of them, okay? We're going to study four of the different methods of Torah exposition. If you have a student book, I believe they put it in here as well. It's page 69, okay? And this helps them arrive at their midrashic conclusions. We're going to start with, um, well, you know, I'll tell the four of them outside. One is called Kal Vachomer, logical deduction. Number two is called Riboy Umiut, textual explanate, exposition. Association, and finally, alternate readings. So again, how do the rabbis expound? In other words, is there a method to the madness, as they say? Yes, there is a method to the madness. As we explained in class number one, whenever the rabbis derive a lesson, right, derived, they have principles by which they follow. We are going to learn today four of those principles. By learning the four of those principles, you will get an appreciation for how these principles work. Where did these principles come from? They were received. Okay, so let's. So, how are we going to study them? We're going to start with a text. This text you can find in uh, the student book, text number seven. 
Um, I'm going to read it. It's here on the screen as well. And I'm going to read it in the English. So here's the text. So just if, in case it wasn't clear, we're pivoting to discussing Medrash expounding that is more in Jewish law. And we're going to, and while we do that, we're going to show you four different methods that the rabbis have employed to expound. All right, the verse says in Exodus 23, 5, when you see the donkey of your enemy collapsing under its burden and you are inclined to desist from assisting him, assist, you must assist with him. And to say it in Hebrew, kitira chamor sonacha rovetz tachat masao vechadalta meazov lo azov tazov imo. For the Hebrew speakers over here. So you're seeing a donkey and you don't want to help him, right? Yes. Um, you are seeing a donkey and you don't want to help him. He's 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 suffering. He's having a tough time. Why is he having a tough time? Because he is loaded too much. The only problem is you love animals, but you don't want to help your enemy. Right? So what are you going to do? What would you be inclined to do? Anybody? Would you help or you wouldn't help? You would help, right? Um, but many people wouldn't, right? So the Torah tells us a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to go and help. Now, what's curious is some of the wording over here. Okay. Um, why does the Torah have to say when you see the donkey of your enemy? Why doesn't it just... Does, does that mean that only if I see the donkey of my enemy, I have to help them? So let's say I see my friend's donkey suffering. Is there a mitzvah to go help my friend's donkey? Is there a mitzvah in the Torah? You might say, I want to do it, right? But either yes or either no. Is there a mitzvah in the Torah to help my friend's donkey? I could hear the argument, maybe no, because the Torah only says your enemy's donkey. Right? So I can just imagine, I'm, I'm a little tired that day. I see my friend with his donkey. And he'll come to me and say, hey, can you help me? I say, I would love to, but it's against the Torah. I, I, I'm just so religious. I would love to help you. But seriously, I read the Torah this morning. It says I have to help my, my enemies. So either, either we get in a fight or I'm not going to help you. What do you mean it's the worst case scenario? What do you mean it's the worst case scenario? Well, that's easy. This is a hard one. This is, this is putting yourself out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, but it's 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 almost common sense that you would help your friend. Oh, it's have to go out and point out. Right. The question is not whether it's common sense. The question is whether it's a mitzvah. Can I honestly get up and say it's a mitzvah to help my friend? Is it a mitzvah to uh, um, biblically? I'm sure the rabbis would come and say it is anyways, right? Biblically, huh? Is it a mitzvah to, uh, uh, to practice hospitality? Um. I don't want to confuse other mitzvahs here. We're dealing I, I think, with specific text. I think biblically it is. It's just pointing out in the in the case that you, in the worst case, it's still a mitzvah to do it. I think it's a mitzvah to do it in general. But here's it's it's saying and you have to do it this way. Okay. All right. So the it, answer is it's yes. A, it's a kavachomer. Kavachomer, yes, kavachomer. What does kavachomer mean? Kavachomer means. If, if yeah. something applies in the more, ex, in the, um, well, it, well, let's give an example. If, let's say, on Shabbat, 
you are not allowed to pick anything. Any prohibition you can't do on Shabbat. If on Shabbat you cannot run your business, surely on Yom Kippur, which is a super Shabbos, you cannot run your business, right? Right. So the same thing will apply over here. If I have to help my donkey, my sorry, my enemy's donkey, surely I have to help my friend's donkey. So by using the principle of Kal V'chomer, Kal V'chomer means if it applies in this case, surely it applies in that case, that is a valid logic in the Torah. Now, without the knowledge, without uh, it being clear to us as a principle, that that is a principle, we wouldn't actually know. But since that is a principle of expounding, therefore, anytime the Torah writes something, in one case, we know it applies to other cases. So, for example, the Torah actually doesn't say a lot about what's forbidden on Yom Kippur. It tells us only five things. How do we know all these other things people don't do on Yom Kippur? We know it from Shabbat. If it's forbidden on Shabbat, surely it is forbidden on Yom Kippur. Why? Because in the Torah, the Torah calls Yom Kippur Shabbat Shabbaton, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. So if something is forbidden on Shabbat, which is one Sabbath, surely it applies on the super Shabbos. So that is a, huh? Even more so. All right, now let me ask you one more question. All right, so if that's the case, why didn't the Torah just write, why didn't the Torah just write, when you see any donkey, go and help them? Why does it, why does it write enemy, huh? Yes, there. Yeah, there's a, there's a book there. You can put it over there. Why? Maybe because you'd be less, to, oh, were, were you asking us or was that a request? I'm asking you, yes. Okay, um, maybe it's because, oh, hold on one second. Maybe that's because. Um, oh, hold on. <laughs> Hi, hold on. Uh, okay. Yes. Sorry. Uh, okay. Um, maybe it's because. Uh, um, where was I? Okay. So maybe it's because they specified it because uh, most people wouldn't help the donkey of their enemy. So they needed to specify that. All right, so, so, all right. Uh, let me just, uh, all right, okay, if everybody can mute again. Um, okay, so actually, I'm going to say like this. If the Torah would have told us you have to help all donkeys, right? Hashtag help all donkeys. We would know you have to help your enemy. The reason why it tells us a story about the enemy is like this. Imagine if you see, you're walking and you see two donkeys suffering. One is your friend's donkey, one is your enemy's donkey. You have to go to your enemy first. Why? Because it'll crush your ego a little bit more. That's a you. good one, Rabbi. Yeah. Well, it's, not, have... it's not me. It's from the sages, okay? It's from the oh, bedrock. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> I'm not making this one up. Um, but, so that okay. here you have a taste of medrash. So the medrash goes through this process, right? So you, I just showed you. First was call the homer, okay? Uh, you know, how do we know that you have to help any donkey? So we used, we employed Kava Homer. Well, if I have to help my enemy's donkey, surely I have to help my friend's donkey. Once we have that answer, though, then we have another question, a follow-up question, which is, well, so why didn't it just write, help every donkey? So there, then we had to come to an additional understanding. Oh, it comes to teach you. If you got two donkeys, one's your enemy, go to that one first. All right, we're going to learn another principle from this same verse. And here you're going to have this in the text. Um, text number nine, but I'm going to say it outside as well. All right. 
at the end of the verse, it says, assist, you must assist with him. Azov tazov imo. The question is the Hebrew word imo with him seems extra, right? I could read the verse just like this. When you see the donkey of your enemy collapsing under its burden and you are inclined to desist from assisting him, assist, you must assist. Why does it say with him? So the rabbis answer and they say like this. They say simple. You can only help those who want to help themselves. The guy, the owner of the donkey can't come to you and say, all right, you got a mitzvah to help me. Let me go sit there on the curb and I'll watch you load my donkey. You only have to help those who are helping themselves. Assist, you must assist with him. If he's going to be there working with you, then you have a mitzvah to help him. But if he just wants to pull the mitzvah card on you and get you to do all the work for free for him, then you say, no, I'm out. You know, I don't, I don't got to help you. I don't have to help you load your donkey. Uh, if you're not going to be there. And this is called, um, this goes under the uh, classification of um, textual exposition. In other words, why was there an extra word? It's called reboy, reboy. Whenever the Torah has an extra word, there's a lesson for us. And so the lesson of the extra word with him is to teach us you only have to help when that person is there with you. So you'll find examples of that throughout Medrashic halachic literature, where extra words are expounded to teach us laws. The rabbis want to understand why was there this extra word. So they examine the verses deeply and say, why is there this extra word? Oh, it's coming to teach this, it's coming to teach that. Okay, so that is an example of another principle called reboy. If there's extra words, the same thing applies also if there's miot, if there's missing words, uh, the rabbis learn from extra or missing words, they can learn multiple, multiple laws from the same thing. So my point is, without, without these lessons, without these principles, you would read this verse and have a very different understanding of the mitzvah. So the medrash, and here you're learning something new, medrash is even in Jewish law. The medrash is a way of expounding the verse. And it can even be in law. For example, like we studied today, why does it say enemy for, why does it say enemy, not to say help all donkeys? Why does it say with him? These words teach us multiple lessons. Medrash can be law as well. Medrash is a, yeah, exactly. So that's what we said in the beginning. Medrash is both a name of a book and a style of Jewish study. In fact, as well, you know, half of Talmud is Medrash as well. Okay. Justice, justice, you must pursue. And it's a double assist here. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Oh, I see you're saying, why don't I just help the donkey, not help him? I'll just cut the ropes, let the burden off of him. Uh, so actually, it's, you're supposed to assist loading the donkey back up. <laughs> um, but yes, why does it say assist, assist twice? And that's another lesson, which we're not, we're not going to go through today. But, you know, this verse has many, many more things you can learn from it. Okay. <laughs> it was good. By the way, I just want to add one more thing in case you think we're cruel to donkeys. So it actually says like this. If the guy, if the owner of the donkey, you can, you can close your mind if you don't want to get confused. But it says if you should understand Jewish law, how much it appreciates cruelty to animals. Um, not to be cruel to animals, that is. It says if the guy doesn't want to help, you're still, you should still help the animal, but then you charge him for it. Then you charge him for your time. Now, this is not a mitzvah anymore, so he's going to have to pay you for helping his animal, but you still have an obligation to go help that animal. So just so you understand how much the power values, huh? 
they need free grab by the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much do you charge them, right? Well, I'm I'm a tech geek, so you know I spent a half an hour doing it. I'm gonna charge them five hundred dollars. Okay. All right, we're gonna go to the next um example. And this is called um okay, oh okay. Uh, we showed this one already, deriving extra meaning from extra clauses. Assist, you must assist them. Why the additional law? Assist, you must assist them. To what extent does one have to assist? Only if he's there. Okay. I'm sorry. I should have shown these on the slides. Uh, if the owner walks up, you're no longer obligated to help. Okay. The next one we're going to do is called the association method. In other words, when text, when two texts are either near each other, when text shares the same, uh, the same letters, um, all of these teach us um, different things. So let's take a look here. So, um, it's going to be, if you have the student book, it's going to be on page 11. Sorry, text number 10. So we're going to share on the screen. Uh, let me see if I can, if I can, uh, okay. All right, so let's read. All right, here's the text. If you have uh, text number 10, this is from the Shema prayer. It says, you shall place these words upon your hearts, upon your souls, bind them as a sign on your hands, and they should be the phylacteries between your eyes. Okay, that's the verse of the mitzvah of tefillin. Um, you read the verse, and you would say, where should the tefillin go? They should go on my hand. It says, put it on my hand. And it says, between my eyes. So I should be pulling it down over here, right? Right between my eyes. But nobody wears the tefillin like the, you know, the left, but you wear the tefillin like the one on the right. Well, how do we know that? So where do they derive the location of the tefillin? Doesn't it say on your hands? So here is how we learn it. The verse with the mitzvah of tefillin follows the verse that teaches us about the teachings of the Torah being on your heart. This shows that tefillin should be tied on the upper arm facing the heart. So this is called lesson by association. The verse right before the tefillin tells us it shall be on your heart. And therefore tefillin should be, sorry, I see I'm going really late. Okay, therefore it tells us that tefillin should be near your heart. Okay. Um, we have the same thing with the mezuzah. Uh, the verse instructs Oh. The eyes. Yeah. You can read that. You can read at length in, in text number text number eleven. Um, the verse instructs us to put on the tefillin is followed by that of the mezuzah. This teaches that the tefillin should be tied by the same hand used to write. So again, which hand do we put the tefillin on? Do we put it on the right or on the left? Since the mitzvah of mezuzah is next to the mitzvah of tefillin, the mezuzah is written with the hand. So when the Torah says you shall bind them as a sign upon your arm. The arm that binds should be the arm that writes because you have the word ukitaftam, you shall write. Next to the word, you shall bind. Therefore, that is how it's done. Okay, so this is tefillin. Um, the phrase between your eyes is found both by the placement of the head tefillin and the prohibition of tearing out your hair when you're in mourning. And so therefore, we know that the tefillin has to be put where you have hair. Unless you have a unibrow, uh, you shouldn't, I'm joking, but you shouldn't put your tefillin there. Uh, but we grow our hair over here and therefore, Again, this is a method of association. I'm sorry, I'm really late, so I'm not going to go through all the rest of the examples. Uh, but I gave you so far two examples of how they learn things by association. Verses nearby or sharing similar, similar terminology can teach us certain lessons. That is another method 
of expounding. Okay. Um, okay. Then we're going to go. Someone asked over here Is it about the fact that the donkey is not your enemy, but an enemy is not your friend or enemy, but an animal life? Okay. Not, okay. I'll have to get to that at the end. So, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm running a little late here. All right. I want to leave off with one final uh, section over here. It's really short. I'm already at slide 30, and uh, there's only 32 slides. The final form of exposition I want to show you. So again, I showed you expounding by Kalva Homer, meaning if something applies in this case, surely it applies there. I showed you expounding based on extra or missing words. I showed you expounding based on association, whether association means they're next to each other, whether association means that they are um, uh, share the same word. By the way, the best example of association is the things we're not allowed to do on Shabbat. Torah says you shall not do any work on Shabbat. The Torah doesn't define what is work on Shabbat. The sages, Medrash, they explain to us, they expound to us, since the law of Shabbat is written right next to the temple building. So whatever they did in the temple, that's considered work. And so that's how we know what's forbidden on Shabbat. If they did it in the temple, that's considered work on Shabbat. Just a, a good example of association. All right, the final one is Kri Uktib, alternate readings. Every word and sentence in the written Torah can be read and understood in multiple ways. This uncovers additional layers of meaning in the text. So if you open up a Torah, and I'll get uh, one over here, there are no vowels. There are no, um, no, okay, there's no vowels, just plain letters. No vowels. Vowels are the difference between right and English. Consonants and um, Right? What are they called? Consonants and vowels, right? So imagine you have a book written without any vowels. Why is it written like that? And the answer is, again, to give it multiple meanings. When you don't have consonants, something can have multiple meanings. There's a great book out there called Eat, Shoots, and Leaves, right? You know the book? Yeah. Eat, Shoots, and Leaves. So most people think that's referring to a panda bear. But in reality, it can also be he eats, he shoots, and then he leaves, right? It can mean either one. And so the rabbis in the Torah do this many, many times where they say the verse is written in one way, but we can also read it in a different way. I'll give an example. Torah says in uh, uh, Exodus, and this is going to be my last example of tonight. Okay, the Torah says in, um, uh, I believe it's Leviticus. Oh, Oh, I had it open here already. What? The Torah says, Ushamartem et hamatzot. Let me put it on the screen over here. Okay, the Torah says, uh, the Torah commands us, we all know we have to eat matzah on Pesach. Uh, what most people don't know is the rabbis have an interesting lesson from eating matzah on Pesach. So here it is, the verse, the Torah says, Ushamartem et hamatzot. You shall watch over the matzot, the unleavened cakes, for in this very day, I've taken your legions out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe this day throughout the generations as an everlasting statute. So that sounds like a very simple, straightforward lesson. You shall wash over the matzah. In other words, don't let it turn into bread. You gotta, that's where the name Shmura matzah comes from. Ushamartim, you shall guard the matzah. But the rabbis say, look at the verse and we can read it because it has no vowels. We can read it a little differently. Now you might laugh at it, but again, this is a method of learning because God specifically did not put any Vowels in the Torah. You can read it like this. Ushamartem 
et hamitzvot. The word hamatzot without vowels can be reread as hamitzvot, which would read like this. You shall guard the mitzvahs. You shall guard the mitzvahs. So again, written without vowels allows for multiple interpretations. Um, I would I would give you one more example, but I'll I'll leave it as a bonus, an interesting thing at the end of the class. Um, let me just end off with um, let me just end off with this, okay? Because uh, we're running really late over here. I, I feel really bad for all the people who need to get to sleep. Um, okay. All right, so here it is. While the pronunciation and syntax in the Tanakh are part of the oral tradition, the text itself is written without vowels or punctuation. There is potential for alternate readings and layers of meaning beneath each verse as we started off the class. So today, what have we learned? We have learned about a genre of Torah known as the Medrash. But in truth, we have studied the meaning of the word Medrash. Next time somebody throws out to you, to you the word Medrash, now you know it means two things. It's both the name of a book or a collection of books but it's also a style of Torah study, expounding, expounding on verses of the Torah. Within the expounding, you can always look onto your handy chart on page 62, and there are multiple types of ways of expounding. You can have parables. You can have historical narratives. You can have uh, moral lessons, ethical teachings, but you can also have Jewish law, and there are principles of how to expound, and we discovered some of those principles today, whether it is of uh, finding extra words, you know, or, or understanding if it applies in a lesser case, it applies in a greater case, or understanding that uh, juxtaposition of words, or understanding numerical values of words. These are all valid ways of expounding. Some of those methods of expounding, just to put it out there, we cannot do nowadays. We're not at that level. Some of those uh, lessons were actually passed on from generation to generation. Uh, we have a limited amount that we can expound. If you want to know what you can and can't, you can you know, talk about that another time. Uh, but we can all study the Torah and, and find multiple, multiple lessons. In addition to that, um, you walked away with a couple lessons from today. Number one, you can be like Abraham. It's never too, you're never too young to start a revolution for good things. Start at age three. Number two, chasing materialism in life is a futile exercise. Number three, a person is not their actions. Pray for every person. Number four, uh, help your enemy's donkey. Help animals as well. Number five, you can only help people who are willing to help themselves. And number six, God's messages are unlimited, like a spark from a hammer. It keeps coming. God wrote this Torah. It looks like a simple text written without vowels because it contains so many and so many layers of meaning. Today, you have discovered some of them. Now you know a little bit more about the library book called the Medrash. Buy a Medrash. I actually recently bought the Medrash myself. One of the books of the Medrash, I should say, uh, the Medrash Rabbah. Art school has a nice translation. Medrash, you can buy a set called The Little Medrash Says. Beautiful read in every Torah portion. Or actually, you buy the Medrash Says. The Little Medrash Says takes out stories that aren't appropriate for children. Uh, you can read the Medrash Says. Beautiful stories, lessons, Medrash. Or you can make your own Drash. They might not be printed and everybody won't study it, but if it has meaning to you or... You can also come to my sermons and get some uh, medrash as well. Um, so hopefully, what I really want is that you walk away today uh, with a couple inspiring messages, but also a better understanding of what medrash is. If you ever forget, uh, take a look at page 62, and you'll have a better idea.
Um, since it is really late, I do want to end off with just one more fascinating uh, text of Midrash, because I promise you I will do that at the end. Um, if you need to go, you need to go, but it's only going to take uh, uh, you know a minute over here. But just to show you, again, how verses without vowels can have multiple meanings. So uh, hopefully some of you are familiar with a prophet, a non-Jewish prophet called Bilam. Bilam uh, prophesied in the desert. He tried cursing the Jewish people uh, unsuccessfully. And ultimately, in the end, he decided to bless the Jews. And uh, this is what he said. And let me, I have to know if I'm sharing the screen. No, I'm not. Let me share the screen over here. Um, so this is just an interesting midrash, really just beautiful showing. Uh, all right, so it says like this. All right, so this is Bilam. Bilam giving a prophecy, and he says like this. Vayisa mishalo vayomar. So let me zoom out. So it's in, uh, it's in the book of Numbers. Oops, I zoomed in. I meant to zoom out. Okay. Okay, so he says like this. He took his parable and he said, alas, who can survive these things from God? What is he referring to? Is he just referring to in the future? Nobody can escape God. So there's a very interesting uh, Midrash that says like this. He was prophesizing of a future event. In the future, there would be a prophet called Samuel. The prophet Samuel, many of you may, many of you may have heard of him. He is the one that anointed King Saul and King David as kings. But he is also the one who uh, killed Agag, who was the king of Amalek. He's the one that ultimately really almost totally destroyed the Amalek. And so if you read these Hebrew words over here carefully, it says, Oi, alas, who can survive? Mishmuel, who can survive from Samuel? And so the commentaries say this is a prophecy of Samuel killing the king of Agag. It's so interesting because it's, it, it's very weird words in Hebrew. And so this spells the word me, Shmuel, who can survive from Shmuel. And if you look up a couple of verses before I was talking about Amalek, right up here, verse 20. So the commentaries say, this is just another example. The Torah being written without letters shows us uh, many other uh, hidden messages that are in there. And so sometimes people look at these and they say, well, these are fantastical fairy tales. So you just, you know, you can take any book and find whatever you want in it. Uh, but again, we believe the rabbis that wrote these ancient Midrashim were divinely inspired. Um, and, uh, you know, us today, we can come up with some things, but you have that belief of their divine inspiration and following the, the principles of derivation. Um, there is so much meaning and so much to be studied uh, within the passages of the Midrash. All right, so I'm going to stop. Next week, we'll be doing the Talmud. I know this; these are heavy.